Well, as we look at the last chapter here of Genesis, we're in Genesis 50. Does God allow things to do us harm or things to happen that would do us harm to accomplish his good? Joseph tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, is what he said, to save many people alive. So did God mean or intend for this to happen to Joseph? Because that sure seems to be the way that Joseph is telling it. So I looked at all the translations that I could, and though some translations use different words, don't you, don't always, then I, don't all use meant, but whatever word they use, they use it consistently in the verse. They'll use it twice. So we're going to take a look at what Joseph is saying and what we can learn about these events for our own life. There's other principles here to take a look at. So let's begin over in verse 1 of chapter 50. Last week we were looking at Joseph, uh, Jacob's blessings on his other sons before he died. We saw that he had a view into the future. And we tackled the question, can we overcome the past completely? Because the first three blessings, he, the first three sons he put blessings on sounded more like curses and they were based upon things they had done. So we tackled that question last week. Here in verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face. This is after Jacob died and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned him seventy days. A couple of things to take note of on this. First off, Egypt, in the area of physicians, that's actually where the uh, place uh, physicians started, or the study of medicine is, is traced back to, was the, the Egyptians. But they were very specialized. So their doctors or their physicians actually had an area of specialty, and they worked on one area of the body. They didn't really have general practitioners like we would have today or people that were skilled in, in multiple areas. They kind of just focused in on, on one. These particular ones that are brought in are Joseph's servants or his own physicians. So Joseph, because of his rank, has his own physicians in his house and he puts them in charge of the embalming process. Now, in Egypt, they had people that were skilled in embalming and they would do the embalming process. It seems that they're not used. And maybe it's because that Jacob is not an Egyptian. Don't really know exactly what the reason is. But the physicians apparently are at least familiar with the process. And so they go ahead with the process. And it says it takes 40 days. Now I did some looking up on the pharaohs. And when they turn the pharaoh into a mummy. Which maybe that's a little bit more of a complicated process. Than just the regular embalming that they do. But when they go through that it takes 70 days. So maybe just the everybody who's not a pharaoh, it takes 40 days for. Or they're not doing it as completely as the embalmers do. Whatever it might be, the process that they are particularly doing takes 40 days. The process that a pharaoh would go through takes 70. So then it says the Egyptians mourned him 70 days, <clears throat> which is significant because a pharaoh, as best I could tell, I found two different sources that told me this, but a pharaoh is mourned 72 so if Pharaoh is more than 72, he gets 70 days of mourning. That's pretty close to a Pharaoh status right there. Um, that sure tells you something. And it does tell us something that they're thinking about Joseph as well. Though this is 17 years that they have been in there. 
and they were two years into the famine, so that was five more years of the famine to go. So five years of the 17 was going to be famine. That's going to leave 12 years. This is 12 years after Joseph's initial responsibilities are finished. He probably kept on going and just found some other areas to to get involved with, but uh, 12 years past that. That's in verse uh, 4. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Something to note here is that Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. He does not speak to Pharaoh directly. That does cause a question because it seemed that he and Pharaoh had a pretty close relationship. So this could mean a few things. One, Joseph's place in the kingdom is not as high since we're 12 years removed from the end of the famine. That is a possibility. There's also a possibility that a new Pharaoh is in place. His contact with the dead person may have disqualified him from Pharaoh's presence. There's also one other thing. In his interaction with the family, it is possible that he let his beard grow because that is the custom of his family is uh, to have their beards grow. It is not the custom of the Egyptians. If you remember when he came out of the prison, he had to be shaven before he went into the presence of Pharaoh. So it may be that his beard had grown and he was not going to go into the presence of Pharaoh with that. Don't know exactly what it was. Could have been any of those number of things, but it is uh, particularly to note that he did go to the household of Pharaoh and not the Pharaoh directly, which would also mean the answer did not come directly from Pharaoh to Joseph. It came to someone in the household and they came over to Joseph. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. So they felt confident they could leave just their little ones, their flocks and their herds, because if you're going to come and attack them, you're coming into Egypt. So they have Egypt to protect them. I would imagine that Pharaoh sent some people over to the land of Goshen to be a guard while they were gone. And that is why everyone could go. So if you look at the entourage that goes with Joseph, it sure would seem like he has favor with this Pharaoh. So if it's a different Pharaoh, he still has favor with them. Uh, it wouldn't seem that his presence not in the front of Pharaoh has anything to do with that because this is quite an entourage. Chariots, horsemen, all sorts of folks that... Uh, this concludes it here. It was a very great gathering that was there. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. So there must have been some Egyptians there, or they just assumed they're Egyptians because they're coming from Egypt. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and carried him into the cave of the field of Machpelah, 
before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. Something that causes some confusion here is this little phrase in verse 11. Therefore, its name is called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So when they say beyond the Jordan, since they're coming from the side that would be west, <clears throat> the thought is that maybe they went beyond the Jordan, which would put them east. So, kind of brings up the thing, where is this exactly that they're at? In one particular verse that speaks of this cave that he bought, in Genesis twenty-three nineteen, and after this Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Well, it associates this cave with the city of Hebron. We know where Hebron is. It's in the land of Judah. And David had reigned there for a time. So, that is not beyond the Jordan, as we would think of it to the east of the, of the Jordan. That is on this side of it. It says that his sons, in verse 13, carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the land in the, in the cave of the field of Machpelah. So that would seem to indicate that this is in the land of Canaan. And also it talks about the Canaanites saw the mourning of the Israelites. So that would also seem to indicate that he was in the land of Canaan. So I pulled up some pictures for you, some things to, to show you of the cave of Machpelah, the cave of the tombs or the, tame of, the cave of the patriarchs. So here's the first one. This is one of the entrances to the cave that you will that you will see. Um, if you go on to the next slide, this is a monument that was built around or on top of in parts of the cave. This monument was built by Herod. This is one. That, this is the structure we have left. One of the I think few structures we have left that Herod built. But this is the structure that he built. Because he was building a lot of things to uh, encourage the Israelites that he was a good guy, including revamping the temple, up, uh, increasing that. Going over to our next slide. This now, if you're uh, if you're on the email list, I sent you this because there's a lot of detail on here, and you can come and, and take a look at that. That first view I showed you was a view that looked from down here up. So this was that area that you saw most pronounced. There's also a picture of this area coming in. These are the entrances to the cave. These are the tombs of the different patriarchs. So if you pull that up on your email, even some of you folks that are here usually get this. This is the uh, thing that Herod built. But you're going to see uh, 18, which is right there. That is Sarah's uh, chamber. And verse uh, number 19, this is, this is Jacob's chamber. In 20, which is right over here, that is Leah's chamber. And so they're all numbered as to where they are. And if you do a, a Google, or I would say DuckDuckGo, go with those, go with those guys. <clears throat> if you do a search for this particular cave, you'll get to see some of the pictures inside. And there are lots of very interesting pictures to see on the inside and what they have done with this in this uh, thing that Herod had built for them. Go on to our next slide. I think we still have some more of the, the ones. This is, again, that view that we showed you, the, the whole 
sketched view. This is the that front area that we had shown you before, and this also is another area of the entrance of the tomb, of the cave, I should say. Go on to our next one. And this is a close-up of that uh, that one. Uh, go back once, if you can. If not, that's all right. This is the the one that was further. Yeah. This is this area right here. All right, go to the go to that slide again. And this is the close-up of it. So that is uh, one of the entrances to the to the cave. I think it's our last one on the cave, right? Yeah. Okay. So that gives you some idea of what it looked like. But this is over in the area of Hebron. And this monument, this structure that is there is very much in Israel. It's not across the Jordan. It is on the Israel side right near the town of Hebron. If you wanted to go over to Israel and do some visiting, you could visit the tomb of the patriarchs. The uh, Arabs controlled this for a while and they restricted the uh, access of the Israelites while they had it. I think the Israelites were only allowed to the seventh step of Herod's or uh, that con- um, I'm not sure that con- that construction probably wasn't there that they were only allowed to the seventh step so there, there's some place that there's one of the pictures that showed you where the seventh step was I think that sketch shows you where the seventh step is that's all they were allowed to get to but in the six days war they retook it and so they had uh, control of it after after that Verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. He said he would be back, and they came back. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down on his face, and they said, behold, we are your servants. Now when brothers saw that their father was dead. This is the foundation of what comes next. They saw that their father was dead. Did they see correctly? Yeah, they saw. I mean, what they saw was right. They saw their father was dead. He was dead. They saw it. That's, uh, that's all truth. So, the foundation here is true. So, put this in your outline for you. What you saw was real. What you conclude may not be. People can see something that is true and draw wrong conclusions. And the conclusions can, can, can be completely off. Sometimes we even mess up what we see by how we remember or interpret it. We sometimes remember it wrong. We sometimes interpret it incorrectly. And the enemy is fantastic. That messing up replay video, isn't he? I mean, isn't it great the way he's able to emphasize things or change things or uh, hone in on something? See that? <laughs> and tell you some things. And then once he can mess up the replay, he can get you to draw the wrong conclusions. So they said, we saw their father was dead. That's, that was, that's the part that was real. Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. 
All right, so they saw something that was real, and then they came to this conclusion that Joseph may want to get back at us. So we need to come up with something to help that. And so they sent messengers. And they said, uh, Joseph, uh, and they didn't go themselves just in case Joseph was mad. And he just killed him there on the spot. So they sent messengers, you go tell them. Before your father died, they didn't say our father. Before your father died, he commanded saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Did this actually happen? I mean, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it actually happened. Because it doesn't seem that it happened until they came to the summation that Joseph might want to do us harm. And so, if Jacob really felt this way, I think Jacob would have met with Joseph. Or when he had that one-on-one with him before he died and he blessed his two sons, Joseph, let me tell you something. I know what your brothers did. I know it was evil. But look, when I'm gone, he would have done it right there directly. But he didn't. And so he says, they say this, uh, before your father died, he wanted us to give you this message. Mm-hmm. Now they're, they're afraid. They have a fear that Joseph is going to do something to him. Perhaps Joseph will. You see, once the enemy can sow a thought that has no real foundation, he will lead you to conclusions that fear generates. He's going to lead you to those kind of conclusions. This is what he's done all through history. This is not the only time he's done it, but sure, this is one of the early times. This is the first book. He he takes an event that did happen. He has them draw wrong conclusions from it. And then they base actions based on the wrong conclusions. My thought is, they made this up. We may get to heaven and we may find out, no, I really said that to them. It just seems like they made this up. Because it doesn't seem like there was any plans about this until they got the thought. Hmm, Joseph might... uh he might, he might do something here. So there's no foundation in truth. There's no foundation in love. And there's no foundation in faith. There is no truth to what they suppose. They're just surmising. Perhaps Joseph will do this. Perhaps. There's no foundation in love because since they have come back for 17 years... Joseph has shown them nothing but love. He has provided for them. He has taken care of them. In their interactions, I'm sure Joseph, as genuine as he is in the love he has for his brothers, has been nothing less than genuine with them. And there's no foundation in faith. There is no trust in God. They just got out of the chapter where Jacob said where each of them was going. Which meant... None of you are going to end. You're going to continue. So they lost faith in that. 
They lost faith in Joseph. They lost faith in their God to preserve them. They walked out of love, stepped into fear. All these things were going on with them. And whenever you see that, you know the enemy is at work. Many times we've seen this in history. And people have done things out of fear. People have done things because they don't trust. They don't trust that the person loves them. And these things begin to happen. We sure saw this in the, in the things of late, the last couple of years, where people build up a fear of a, of a virus. There's no real foundation for the fear. It's not that nobody died from this or that the thing is not lethal to some people. But we had ones before it. And I've named them all before. And those ones killed people too. But for some reason, this one was singled out. And pretty much everybody who was dying of something died of it. And fear mounted. And people came to wrong conclusions. And then we saw people, you know, they're going around, everybody's wearing masks. Now they, they tell you to wear two masks. Do you, I don't know if I, I know I meant to tell you this, I, I got this out. But in 2006, uh, the, the uh, Dr. Fauci, he uh, wrote a report in 2006 about how masks are not only ineffective, this is in his report. You'll have a hard time finding it now because it's been scrubbed. They took it off the internet. But he's the one who wrote it in 2006. He said, citing the plague of 1918, this great Spanish flu, he said, many of the people who died in the great Spanish flu died of fungus and bacterial infections generated by the masks they wore. I saw this uh, picture that somebody put up on, on Facebook. And generally, if I see something I don't agree with on Facebook, I just move on. I just go to something else. I regretted it. I said, oh, I should have probably put something up there. But I, I had gone on. I don't know where it was. But this person... I don't remember who it was, but they, they, they put this report up and there was a picture of three Petri dishes. Everybody know what a Petri dish is? Had three Petri dishes, uh, th- series of three on this side and a series of three on this side, and they had a person cough on these three, a uh, different person on each three, cough wearing a mask, and on this one, not wearing a mask. And then they showed you in the one where they were not wearing masks, things were growing in it. In the ones where they were wearing the mask, nothing grew. See? Masks work. I was so angry at seeing that. I mean, I was fire mad. Because that is such a misleading thing. They just deceived everyone in that. Because what they made people think is, you see that? A virus will grow. What they don't tell you is, none of those Petri dishes had viruses in them. They can't. I don't even need to see the study. They cannot have a virus in it. What they had was fungus and bacteria that grew because when you cough, sneeze, or do anything like that, that can come out. And that's actually why the masks were made. The purpose of why they made masks was for surgeons because in surgery, when they would do surgery during some of the the early wars, they would get staph infection. They would get infections because while they were operating on them, the f- fungus or the bacteria would come from the person over them doing the surgery, and then they would sew them up. And so it bypassed a lot of the body's safeguards to keep that out. 
and they would get infected and die. Eventually, they learned about infection. They came up with a mask. The mask are only to protect the person on the operating table from having those things, bacteria and fungus, not virus. It was to protect bacteria and fungus. You can do your own looking up. I went through school, and they taught us this stuff. So I know these are, are right. So what they had growing in those petri dishes were fungus and bacteria because you cannot have a virus grow in a petri dish unless you somehow get human cells because a virus cannot reproduce without joining with, the, with a cell. It doesn't have to be human. It has to be some type of an animal cell, human cell. And once it does that, then it can multiply and produce. The fact that they are multiplying and produces will tell you that it's probably a fungus or a bacteria because they do not need a human cell an animal cell to do that. They are alive by themselves. A virus is not alive until it attaches to a cell. I was so mad because any educated person would be able to tear that down in seconds. And all that went through me in seconds. I saw it. I just was so mad. I wanted to write something out there and put it on there, but I just moved on. But these are the kinds of things that they'll do. They throw this stuff out. Now, they scrub Dr. Fauci's uh, stuff off there, and so you can't find it. Uh, but since 1918, I don't know if I ever gave you this stat, but since 1918 and the virus uh, of the Spanish flu, there have been 37 studies of masks and every single one, every one has shown they are ineffective to keep healthy people healthy and they will spread bacteria and fungal infections among healthy people. Somehow Dr. Fauci forgot about his 2006 report and decided to change things and, and, uh, and go in a different direction. So it, just, it gets me angry when they are giving false information as truth because once you have the false pretense, you will go off on a wrong conclusion. Even here, where they saw what was true, they still were able to go off in the wrong direction. you got to always come back to that. Trust your spirit. Listen to the spirit on the inside of you. The spirit in the inside of you will tell you, this is something to be concerned about. This is not anything to be concerned about. And if your spirit on the inside of you tells you to go one way, another way, then that's what you do. You follow your spirit. Don't ever follow fear. We're not given a spirit of fear. We're given a spirit of power, love, and assignment. Those are the things we follow. That's not the direction that the brothers went. Now, my question here is, where's Benjamin? Is Benjamin among the brothers that are bringing this? I can't see it because Benjamin, he's not in that number. So they must have left Benjamin out. Benjamin doesn't know what's going on. And they just kind of conspired amongst themselves and sent this. Because I'll bet you if Benjamin, if they involved Benjamin, Benjamin's over there saying, you guys are nuts. Can't you see what Joseph has done for us? Can't you see all the things that he has done? He is not coming against you. He's not going to go again, try and kill you guys. So maybe they just avoided him. Maybe he said that, just washed his hands of it, figured you guys aren't going to be so stupid as to do this. But they were. It's interesting, here at the end, in verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. This upset him. It made him sad. How can you guys think that I would do this? He's got to know I think Joseph would know better than anybody whether this is true or not. If he had an opportunity with his dad towards the end and his dad didn't say anything about it to him, 
He's got to be saying, Mm-mm, I talked with dad. He didn't say nothing about that. You guys are putting it. Now, if he knew that, he didn't. He, as far as we can tell, he never approached him about it. He just says, guys, come here. Come here. And he begins to talk to him. But he, he was saddened at this. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Hmm. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I, or am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, have you ever had anybody doubt who you are? Doubt the love that you have demonstrated to them? Doubt the forgiveness that you've extended to them? And they come to, and they came to you, approached you like these brothers did? What, what rises up on the inside of you? How dare you? <laughs> you we have come on and get mad at them. Joseph seems to have been saddened by this action, but he doesn't seem to respond out of anger with them. All he does is try to bring comfort to them and to help them out. Up till now, they've had 17 years to see the genuine forgiveness in Joseph. That's a long time. Well, he says to them, do not be afraid. I wrote this in your outline. It sounds like a Jesus response, doesn't it? Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? He tells him, I am not the person who judges sin. I am not I am not the person who judges a person's heart. That is God's. I am not in that place. Do not fear. Nothing's going in that direction. For Joseph, he never even contemplated going in that direction. And have somebody accuse you of something you're not even thinking about. All you're thinking about is, is loving your family, enjoying having your family together, and then these guys come in and do this. So they first sent a messenger, and then they came before him, and they bowed down. The um, Verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. That word that's translated meant it, you can look at different translations and they'll give you a few variations on it. It's not a whole lot. But whatever they put in the first use of it, they put in the second. I don't know how much I gave you in your outline for this, but it comes from the Hebrew word uh, kosab. It's, it, it's spelled differently from how it's pronounced. It's spelled H-A-S-A-B. But I'll give you the Strong's number on if you ever want to look it up. H, for Hebrew, 2803. H2803. It's used a number of times in the Bible, so it gives us a good place to get an idea of this. It means to think, plan, esteem, calculate, invent, make a judgment, 
imagine, or count. You meant, you thought, or you intended is what it's going to come down to. Now, if God will not make people get saved, believe in faith to receive, let my people go. He doesn't make them do that. To not bring idolatry into the land. You can keep on going with that list. Can he make people do evil to bring about good? No. How can God make them do evil in order to bring about good if he can't make them do good to bring about good? That doesn't seem to be right. So I I contemplated this verse for a long time. Trying to get a view of it. Because this is Joseph. This is not, this is not Judah. This is not Reuben. Simeon. This is not the other brothers making this. This is Joseph. This is the guy who's got a good relationship. Probably the best relationship in the family with God. The closest with God. And this is what he's saying. So either we just write it out while he's wrong. Or we try and understand what is it that is going on here. So I tried to take that road. What is it that's going on? So I would see this as since these people, God speaking, since these people are going to do such and such, since the brothers are going to, he already knows it, are going to sell Joseph in, then God was going to act on something. Now, God cannot make people do things because he said he wouldn't. But one thing I know about my God is he can alter events. So I began to think through scripture about some of the events that he altered to help things. Of course, we know with Pharaoh, he altered all kinds of events, did he? He altered events that changed the Nile into blood. He altered events that brought in frogs and all kinds of calamities, all kinds of plagues. Those were events for the purpose of having people change their minds as to what they will do. He still needed Pharaoh to change his mind. After they left Egypt because of the plagues, he led them to a place that to the Egyptians looked like a trap. Now, they just followed the cloud to where the cloud led them. Once they saw they were in a trap, they got a little upset and they started to complain about about God. And that's when God spoke to Moses, the Egyptians you see, you will see no more. See, he orchestrated the events. And so then Pharaoh and the army, they came right up to the brink of a divided Red Sea. And so God says, what are you going to do now? He's not going to make them. He can't make them do it. He just set up events. If you really want them, there they are. <laughs> so they begin to think, we can go get them. And so they decide to go across. And once they're all inside the Red Sea, God says, ah, gotcha. God controlled events. He didn't control the people. See, that's what our God can do. Don't pray to ask God to change people. 
God will change events. And when people see those events, that changes people. Remember Jehoshaphat's victory. God changed events so that the people that came against Jehoshaphat and his army began to think differently. And they decided to turn on each other and to kill each other. How about the preservation of Moses? Did God change the minds of anyone? Did God make them decide to do anything? No. He just orchestrated the events. Miriam, now's the time. Put them in and you follow them and you watch what happens. And so they did that. They led it right up to the Pharaoh's daughter and Moses was taken in. He altered events. He didn't change people. He altered events to save the life of Jesus. People were wanting to kill him. And so he altered the events. Joseph, leave. Going down over here. And then when people were dead, Joseph, it's okay to go back. He altered events that brought about a victory with David's win over Goliath. He didn't change anyone's will. He didn't make anybody do anything that they didn't want to do. The men in the army didn't want to go out there and face. Saul had 40 days to man up and go out there and meet him. He didn't do it. So then God altered events. And he went out and got a little shepherd boy. He'll do it. And he brought him out. When David sees this going on, he's going to get mad. Sure enough, he got mad. He altered the events. He altered events when Jonathan decided with his armor bearer, you know what? Today I'm feeling good. Let's go kill some Philistines. And they went up and they started killing Philistines. And they orchestrated an entire victory because two people decided to follow something that came up on the inside. Hey, go on out there and do that. All right, we're going to go out there and do that. They followed after what God had said. We can keep on going, but you can think of other, thi- other times. God didn't change people. He changed events. Those events made people consider changing their mind. I think the poster boy for this would be Paul. God changed events. He didn't change his mind. He changed events. Bright light shines down. Voice from heaven. That was an event that left a very big impression on Paul. And he decided on his own, you know what? I'm going to go in a different direction. And he did. Boy, did he go in a different direction, huh? Just know, God did not change people. didn't change their mind. He changed the events. So when you look at this story with Joseph, and God is looking at all this, And he sees this is what they're going to do. They won't listen to me to change their mind. They're too filled with rage and hate and bitterness. They won't listen to me. So this is what they're going to do. So God arranges the events. Let's bring them on by. I know Potiphar is looking for somebody. Let's have them go this way so they hit Potiphar first. And Potiphar looks over the crowd and Oh, I like that one. And he bought Joseph. 
And he didn't cause Potiphar's wife to make the accusation. But when he did, he orchestrated events again. Because he can orchestrate events. And there in the prison, he orchestrated another event. That they would have these dreams and that Joseph would hear about them. See, that's an event. So just know your God will change events and make it very encouraging for people to make the right decision. But it's still their decision. They still have to make it themselves. But as he did with Pharaoh, I'm going to make this real easy for you. Pharaoh made it a lot harder than it had to be. So Joseph continues to provide for him after the famine is over. All those years. He speaks words of comfort, comfort, not words of offense for their wrong assumptions about him. We could take a lesson from that. When people speak things and you want to get offended, don't get offended. Speak words of comfort. Don't be, don't be speaking words from offense. Follow the example of Joseph. There are some times that people are not responding well to that. Jesus had some of those in his ministry. And so he, he was a little firmer. But he didn't answer out of offense. Out of offense, he answered as his father had told him to do so. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who also brought up on Joseph's knees. So Joseph lived another 54 years after Jacob's death. 17 years he lived with Jacob in Egypt. 54 years after that, he saw great-grandchildren by his by Ephraim. It seems that he at least saw grandchildren of, uh, of Machir, or through Machir. So it seemed, just the way they describe it here, that Ephraim... All his children, it seems like they all had generations of kids. Manasseh, only one is singled out as having generations of kids. So that may mean that Manasseh's kids weren't as fruitful as Ephraim's kids, which of course is according to what Jacob had said about them. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Doesn't specifically mention the morning time for Joseph. It may have been the same as that for his father. But he said it is basically in verse 24, he's saying it is true that I am dying, but it is also true that God will bring you out of this place. You're not going to stay here. I am dying, but God will surely visit you. I looked up that word visit. This word visit means to visit with friendly or hostile intent. It means to oversee to avenge, do judgment, or deliver. 
There's a lot of other meanings you can put on it too. These are the most pertinent to what we're looking at here. When he says he's going to visit you, he could be saying God will come and deliver you. God will come and avenge you by using this particular word that we have translated here, visit. It may be he knew what was coming. Of course, if he understood the prophecy that God had given, he would certainly understand that. But he asked for something unusual. He said, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. In verse 25, verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. And they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Being the position that he was in Egypt, he could have been having a very great tomb. I don't know that he would be granted a pyramid. I think they're just for the pharaohs. But he would have been given a very great tomb and a very honorable burial right there in Egypt. But he decided, no, I'm going to give all that up. What I want you to do is I want you to put me in a coffin. Don't bury me. I want you to be, I want you to keep me around so that the people walking by see me. What is that? That's Joseph's coffin. Why is it buried? Well, Joseph, and they begin to tell the story of Joseph. What God had done through Joseph. How God preserved the world and preserved Israel through Joseph. And how when he died, he says, you will be taken up from here. God will come back and God will visit to deliver you. When you do, take me and then go and bury me. He could have had them go and bury him in the land of Israel, just like they did with Jacob. And he'd be there waiting for him. But he says, no, I need to do something different. I am going to let my coffin be a memorial for them. Now, I have some pictures here of the tomb of Joseph. If you go back up into Joshua's days, you will find out he was buried over in Shechem. This is what the tomb looked like in the 19th century. They put a memorial up over there. If you go to the next picture... This is inside what it looks like today. That is the coffin of Joseph. Go to the next picture. That is the foyer of the structure they have for the tomb of Joseph. Go to the next one. How is it? Oh, we only that's right. We only have three of those. This is in Shechem. He did not get buried with his with the patriarchs. So we have the 17 years he lived with Jacob. We have the 54 years that he lived after his father died. That's 71 years that Joseph lived with his brothers. And that Joseph lived out of that 71 years. Only five of those years were during the famine years. The rest of it was was post-famine. So at 110 years, probably he uh, had retired from whatever service he ended up in. In, in Pharaoh, or when a new Pharaoh took over, maybe they didn't want Joseph in that position anymore, and they they took him out, but he, apparently he was still honored all the way up until his death. Israel was in Egypt, we know, for 430 years. If you take out the 71 years of Joseph's, uh, Joseph's life here, Because the 430 years starts 
when Jacob came to Egypt, not when Joseph came to Egypt. So you take the 1754, get the 71. If you take away the 71 years from the 430, you have that Joseph's coffin served as a reminder to the children of Israel for 359 years. 359 years that coffin was not buried. 359 years of testifying to the four generations that we know came from the time of uh, Joseph until the time of Moses. All four of those generations, they didn't know Joseph. But they knew the story. The story was told. My thought when I was contemplating this is about memorials. What did the latter Egyptians think of this tomb? Reminding the people that they would return home. The Egyptians had to know what this tomb was. They had to know what it represented. All they had to do is get at one of the the weaker Israelites and beat them until they told them it's Joseph's tomb and he's doing this so that we remember that we're going to be leaving here. And I can't imagine that would stick too well to a pharaoh who was afraid that these people would become so numerous and so great that they started killing their babies. And then when Moses comes on the scene, let my people go. It's not in Scripture. But how could this memorial not be front and center focus? If Pharaoh came down on them because of their talk of going back into the into Canaan or going into the wilderness of sacrifice, if he got mad at them for their talk, what was his thoughts about this memorial? What was he thinking about this? Would he want to tear this thing down? He apparently never was able to. Never did. Did the children of Israel decide, no, we're, we're not letting you tear this down? And did they guard it? I don't know what the story is about that. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out. But I cannot imagine any scene in which the Pharaoh, who's upset with Israel, wanting to go back to Canaan, doesn't look at the memorial that they have kind of in the center of their camp, reminding them that we're going back. Put in your outline this, memorials are not to remind us of perfection. Joseph was not perfect. It's not to remind us of perfection. They are a testimony of how God used what was imperfect to bring about his desired results. If you go through all the memorials in Israel, all the memorials in the Old Testament, they went back to to times, to things that happened, to people. And they did not point back to perfect things. Sometimes they pointed back to very imperfect things. That bronze serpent on the, on the staff, that was imperfect. But they had that as a memorial to remind them. In the latter days, we learn from the book of Daniel that the final kingdom would be different from any other kingdom. This final kingdom 
would destroy everything in its past. That it would tear down, kill. And of course, we never saw that with Rome. If you've been through the end times class, you know we saw this with the uh, Islamic Caliphate. They are the ones who went on through. And when they came through a village, a group of people that did not believe as they believed, they killed them all. When they came upon religious symbols that did not represent what they believed, they destroyed them. It's never happened before. Rome never did that. Rome wanted you to have your history, just obey Rome. But this one didn't. And this is the kingdom that's coming back. When I look around the world today, and I look at all this animosity towards memorials, we're pinpointing the imperfections in either who they represent or the episode that they represent. We've lost sight of what the memorials are to do. But my question is, is this spirit of the final kingdom catching hold to more than just the final kingdom? Are other people picking up on the same spirit? And that is why we're seeing such a move to destroy and to tear down. It's one of those questions I wonder about and I think of. Because God is very big on memorials. He wants them to remember things. Joseph gave up what could have been a very honorable tomb, a very honorable burial. He gave it up to leave behind a testimony to those who would come after. And notice this too. We can go to the tomb of Joseph. I couldn't find that we could go to the place of the tomb of the other sons. But you can go to the tomb of Joseph. That's a memorial. Thousands of years now, we have that as a memorial. It tells us about the things that had gone. But for 359 years, this reminded these people that we were going up. So I ask you this question. What would you give up to leave behind a testimony to those who come after you? What would you be willing to give up? Would we give up being proved right if it leaves a better testimony? How many on the inside of you get all mad when somebody wants to try and tell you something that you believe is right or wrong, but you know it's right? And we want to go out there and we try and win the argument. But have we destroyed our testimony? Would we give up being angry even though we feel the right to be angry? Because the people who saw us angry, that may stand as a memorial to them. What does that anger show to your family? What does it show to your children? What does it show to the people who look up to you if they see that kind of anger? What am I willing to give up to leave behind a testimony for those who come after me? Joseph had a right 
to a tomb and a burial, and it was very important to them, but he gave it up. So as we sign off with this series of Joseph here and looking at his life, he signed off very differently from anyone else. He signed off in a way that said, I want to let my life be a testimony for the people that are to come. And I will give up what I have a right to when of all the people that are here in Egypt that are my people, I would have the grandest funeral and the grandest tomb. But I will give all that up so that my people that come after me have this testimony that I believe so strongly that you will not stay here that I ask my body not be buried. So what am I willing to give up to leave a testimony for others? Father, just as you called on Joseph to give up something and leave this testimony, what would you have us not hang on to so dearly that we would be right, we would be angry when we want to be angry, what would we give up to be a testimony to the people that are around us? Just as you showed Joseph something that he could do to sow this into those that would come, you can show us as well. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions, comments? Anything to add? Thank you, Lamar. Uh, we got our microphone back there, Mr. B. Huh? Mm-hmm. Um, when Joseph was in Egypt mm-hmm. and the uh, the coffin was there, when they took him uh, out of Egypt. They left the coffin out, or did they actually bury him at that point? They took the coffin out of Egypt. Okay, They took right. him in the coffin, right. carried the whole thing out. But did they actually bury him, or they just let it still be, I don't know, out and uh, visible? Well, they apparently didn't bury it underground because okay. they had They're this memorial to. that was around it. Okay, I don't know that when I showed you in the 19th century, I did not find a year that was built. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine there was another structure that was before that, and that this one replaced it. Okay. That's but that's just a guess on my part. That they apparently didn't bury it in the ground. Right. That's what it seems like. That's what it seems like. Uh, But they gave him a burial. Of course, neither the the other patriarchs. If you go up and you do a search for more pictures of this, what you'll find is that in this cave, the cave of the patriarchs, there are three sections in this cave. And they're underground. You can see where the three sections are. One section has bodies in it. The other two are empty. The one section that has bodies has six. So they're not necessarily buried. They are just in a cave. 
you can walk down to where they are. And that's why they have the, uh, the things set up the way that they, the way that they do. Um, so those ones aren't buried. Um, when Jesus was buried, he wasn't buried. He was in a, a carved out spot. So this seems to be something that happened. Uh, you had to have money. It was not, not cheap. The, the, the cheap ones, you know, you bury a hole in the ground, you put them in there. I guess that, that was it. But the people who had money, they had these stone things. Um, Abraham bought the cave and they, they put them in there, but they're, they're not buried. You can get to them. So when he says, I want to be buried next to, to uh, his wife, they have to dig her up. They just walked down into the cave and laid her next to him. Or laid him next to her. That was it. When they bring Jacob, they didn't have to dig anybody up. They just walked down into the cave and put him next to her. That's all they did. So if you go up on, and you can see some more pictures of it. Uh, you can actually, they'll show you, here's where the stairs are going down, because they now have stairs. I don't know if they had stairs before. They got stairs now, so they got stairs coming down this end. You walk down this underground spot. And I did not mention this, but the cave is actually in the old section of Hebron. There was an older section of Hebron that had some underground tunnels. And so the cave somehow connected into these underground tunnels of the city. The old city, not the, the city that David had. Old city as in old before Hebron of David's time. 